It's great to be here with you. My name is Curtis. Uh, Our scripture reading for today that we'll be exploring is in Isaiah chapter 44. So if you'll turn there with me, verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 44. The word of the Lord says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water out water on the thirsty land and streams upon the dry ground. And I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will honor and will name Israel's name with honor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, you have spoken to us. You've spoken to your people uh, of Israel of old. Lord, we thank you that that word is still uh, living and active, sufficient, Lord, to give us your good news uh, of your grace. Uh, Speak to us this morning. Speak a kind word of your love, of your kindness to us. May we glorify you in our time as we hear your word and as we listen. May you shape us and change us by your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So the title of today's sermon is Named by God, because we are named by God, and Israel in our passage is named by God. For as, and I thought about this, for as much thought as we put into naming our kids, the meaning behind that name, the specific name that we choose, ends up being uh, superficial. I don't know, uh, there are some names nowadays that I hear, I won't mention any, because uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but I hear some ridiculous names. And, um, but the meaning behind them, it's not necessarily any thought that goes into it, right? We, it's superficial at best. I don't know if you've ever looked up the meaning of your name. My name is Curtis, as we've said, but my name actually means courteous. And so I thought, after I learned the meaning of my name when I was a child, I thought, am I courteous? I probably was before, but I guarantee you that at least for a couple of days, I tried to be extra courteous. I found out that's what it meant, and I tried to apply that to my life. Maybe you're named after someone um, special, someone in your family, a uh, family name. Um, my wife, Marion, is named after her grandmother. Um, or maybe you're named after a famous person. But the question is, how significant is that specific name? The meaning of it. Your given name may not be very significant to you, and, uh, and your, your last name as well, depending on how, how well you like your family right now. You know, it may not be very significant to you either. But the meaning of the name in the, Old, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the meaning of a name that, was, that were given to the Israelites, were given to specific people, to given to Israel, were greatly significant. The name that God gave His people was greatly significant, and the name that individuals received in the Scriptures, it was greatly significant. Our main point this morning that we'll be exploring together is that in our passage we find the means by which we can place our hope our trust in the God who has called us by name, the one who is able to accomplish all that he purposes to accomplish for us, with us, and through all the circumstances that surround us. We can trust in this God who has called us by name. So in our passage, just as a little bit of background, 
It's in a larger section, uh, uh, one of basically two major sections in the book of Isaiah. It's in the second section that we find, and it's written to the people of Israel that they might read it while they were in exile and be encouraged while they were in exile. See, we find the ones whom God has chosen being called by extremely personal names by the Lord. But I guarantee you that those, the exilers, the Babylonians who had defeated them, weren't calling them beloved names. I'm sure they were calling them uh, exiles, potentially those who had joined their ranks and were serving the Babylonians. They probably called them traitors. They probably called them many names, called them defeated. In 587 and then subsequently in 586, they were utterly destroyed, the Israelites, by the Babylonians and carried off by these people. Everything they once knew was lost. They lost land, family, They even lost their place of worship in 586. Basically, they had received judgment for being unfaithful to their covenant to Yahweh. And as a result, they were exiles now. And in exile, it was the hope of those that held them in exile that they would lose their identity. That they would assimilate. That they wouldn't give them any trouble. That they would just become like them. I thought about an illustration of this point. I don't know if um, you've ever been in a business that's been bought by another business and, uh, and then they give you a new name. You potentially are doing some of the same kinds of work, but you're doing it under uh, a different name. Well, the, I thought about this. In the, well, it would have been like a company buying your business, which potentially was a smaller business or one that was being put out. Them coming in and destroying that building, carrying you off to the corporate location and saying, you're different now. You're going to do what we want you to do there. I also thought about uh, maybe your favorite sports team. I don't know if some of your college sports teams played yesterday. But it's like the, what happened to the Israelites is like the equivalent of, uh, of your favorite team, the competitor coming in, completely demolishing on a football game, 100 to 0. And then, not only that, they tore down the stadium, kicked everybody out of the stadium. They completely devastated Israel. And it was their hope that Israel would lose their identity in that process. You see, Israel was at a point in their life that many other nations, as the Babylonian Empire and all these other major world powers started to expand, they basically just devastated and destroyed many other nations. They were at a place where many other nations had been, but Israel, for some reason, is different. For some reason, as we know, that God had a plan for them, that their story was not ending. Being carted off into exile was not the end of their story. Being carted off into exile was part of God's larger story for them. God had a plan for them. His story for them was still progressing. And and through Isaiah, God was giving them an encouraging word. He was telling them God's word of promise. Assuring them that God's intention for them, even though they hadn't lived up to their end of the bargain, that God's intention for them was good. That God had a special plan for them. He was giving them a a promise. In Isaiah 7-3, we have Isaiah foreseeing imminent destruction through the Assyrians, through uh, the Babylonians. And he names his son, because of the inspiration of the Lord, he names his son Shear Yashub, which means a remnant will return. Seeing the Babylonian threat coming, Isaiah was inspired to give uh, his son a name that had a future promise bound within the meaning of it. He was inspired to call his son, a remnant will return. 
Every time they heard this name, every time they, if they were listening, they should hear a gracious word that a remnant will remain. Even though you're in exile, a remnant will remain. You see, in the Babylonian captivity, though the Israelites might have been having an identity crisis, Yahweh had not forgotten their name. He had not forgotten their calling. In, verse, uh, in, in chapter four, uh, 44, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 through 5, we get an encouraging word in the midst of exile. We get a promise of blessing and a future that was determined by God and no one else. When Israel was at its lowest point, God preserved a remnant. When their identity was on the verge of being lost, God preserved a remnant. When they were unsure of their place in God's plan, whether He loved them, whether He still accepted them, God preserved those whom He had loved. He preserved a remnant. So let's look at the verses, uh, specific passage that we're in today for a couple of minutes. And we'll look at three points that we'll explore together. And the first point is, that we were to, because we have been named by God, we are to trust in His sovereign choices. The second point is that we need to trust in God's abundant promises. And our third point is that we need to trust in the finished work of God in Christ. So point one, let's explore that. Trust in God's sovereign choices. In verse one, we get a parallel structure in here. It's Hebrew poetry is what we find in the, in, in the text of Isaiah that we see. Uh, we get a parallel structure. We get... Now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. If you hear the word, uh, the name Jacob, there's great significance behind that name, right? That God had chosen this one who was born, the story says, that he's snatching at the heel of his brother. The one who would inevitably go and steal the birthright of his brother, which he truly wanted, with the help of his mother who conspired uh, with him. But despite his shortcomings, despite his exile, because Jacob was exiled, left his family, left his homeland for fear of his uh, life being taken by his brother, whom he had deceived. He still, despite his shortcomings, received a promise of God. Jacob became Israel. God gave Jacob a new name. If we hear this in this text, Jacob and Israel, we should think back to that story. It made what God giving him a new name did was it made Jacob's life more significant than his past sin. It made his life more significant than his past failures. God called Jacob unto himself in exile as his servant, as the one whom he had chosen to continue in the footsteps of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Similarly, all of us were born in our trespasses and sins, born dead, born in exile have been given one name by our parents, one which has our old person written all over it. We're exiles. But God bringing His redemptive plan about in our lives, He applies the work of Jesus to us and we get a new name, one, which, one by which we are eternally defined by. And uh, that is a gracious word. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. Israel received that word. They were sons and daughters of the Most High. This remnant that God had preserved were still sons and daughters of the Most High, even though they were exiles. And verse 2, we get um, a, a call to look at God's sovereign plan in that it extends not just to our day-to-day -day walk and the choices that we've made, 
but all the way back to as we were conceived, uh, as we were formed in the womb, as we were born, before we had any obligation or any choice, any capacity to do that good or to do evil at that point, God actually chose us before that. Why did God choose Abraham over all the other men of his day? Why did God choose Abraham? Was it that he had something more sufficient to offer than someone else? Was it that he was more righteous than the rest? No. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because before they were born, he had a purpose for them. God was knitting them together in the womb by his grace, preparing them by his grace for a, a future purpose. And true Israel as well, they were chosen by His grace. Um, Sustained in the womb. Sustained and kept by our great Father. You see, God chose to make an unconditional covenant with Abraham. John Calvin commenting on this verse, he actually says that this should point us to the reason why God chooses any of us. That it's His grace. That is the reason why He chose you. That's the reason why He chose us to be part of His church is by His grace. You see, it's God who chose us before we were even born. And as He formed us in the womb and preserved us, we should look to Him as the one who is gracious. You see, we can trust God because God is the one who sovereignly rules over His creation. Over us, over everything that He's made, there is a great blessing in this verse to know that God is intricately involved in your life. He's intricately involved in this world. He sovereignly orchestrated your birth, and because of that, He holds your life in His hands. And therefore, He says to Israel at this point, He says, fear not. Though you are in exile, though it looks bleak, though your, your lives don't look the way that you uh, want for them to look, or you intend for them to look, He says, fear not. Though Israel is being depicted in exile now for disobedience, God still tells them fear uh, for disobedience. God says, fear not, Jacob, my servant. Fear not, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. I have made you. I have formed you. I have chosen you. I will help you. Just a quick word on this word, Yeshurun. I don't know what uh, version of the scriptures you have, but um, we don't necessarily know the exact meaning of the word. Uh, scholars debate about that like they debate about everything. But... The translators are smart because if you can't find the meaning of the word, you basically can just transliterate it, right? Just take the way it sounds in Hebrew and make it sound like that in English. And that's what our translators have have done uh, for us. But there are a couple of possible meanings of this this word yesharun that the scholars debate about. And one of them, depending on the etymology, depending on where they take it, they say it either means God saying, Jacob, whom I have chosen, yesharun, whom I love, whom I have chosen, it means Uh, either my upright one, those righteous ones of mine, or it means beloved one and um, my beloved. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we get, that's the way that the Greek translators took it. They said agapetos. They took Jeshurun and they didn't transliterate it into Greek. They, they, They said agapetos, which means beloved. I think either one of those things actually can be applied here. They are God's righteous ones, not because of their own righteousness, but because God deems them righteous. They are God's beloved because as He's called them righteous and called them unto Himself, His particular people, He calls them by loving names. He calls them His very own. We see in exile, you think that God would be truly upset with them and calling them 
uh, bad names, calling them things that, uh, that uh, they're deserving of. But he doesn't. He calls them, in their disobedience, intimate names. Every time we find this word Yeshurun in the Old Testament, it's an intimate place. God's saying, you are my chosen people, my beloved. God calls them in their disobedience and now in their punishment for disobedience. This exile, he calls them uh, out in love. A name which has love written all over it. You see, in 43, if you go up one chapter in verse 25, God says through Isaiah, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Though they were losing their identity and they might have even been identifying themselves as sinners, as failures, as exiles. God says, I will forgive your transgressions for my namesake. I will call you Yeshurun, my upright ones, my beloved. I have not forgotten you. I have sovereignly orchestrated your life, your birth as a nation, your discipline in this exile. And in your exile, I am sovereignly orchestrating your uh, uh, grace to forgive you. I'm sovereignly orchestrating that. And not only that, as we'll see in these promises of God that he makes, that he makes to Israel that they can trust him. He says, I've, only, I've given you sufficient grace to forgive you. But not only that, I'm going to give you sufficient grace to restore you to a place that, uh, that you were in before. But not only that, I'm going to restore you to a place that's better than what you were in before. You see, one of my professors, Doug, Dr. Doug Green, says the gospel actually shares a better word than we can imagine. He says, what, we, what God created as originally good, we broke and turned bad. But God doesn't say, I'm just going to restore you to what was good. It was God say, I'm taking you to a place that's better. He gives sufficient grace that He might take us to a place that's better than what we were in before. You see, we can trust God because He's gracious. He sovereignly oversees the affairs of our lives. And with Israel, even though they had failed Him miserably, He calls them a new name, not exile, not failure. He calls them Yeshurun. He calls them this remnant, beloved ones, whom He would forgive and restore. The second thing we need to look at for a minute is that God, we can trust Him because He's given us a new name and He's given us abundant promises. Promises that are bound up in, and for Israel specifically, in the past promise he had made in this unconditional covenant to Abraham. That he might bless him, that he might be the father of a great nation, and that all the nations might be blessed by him. You see, God bound up his promise here in the past. He, even though they would forsake his covenant, even though they would break covenant with him, does God break covenant? No. He is faithful to his covenant. So God gives them a past promise and says, look back, this name, Jacob, Israel, look back to the patriarchs. Look back to this covenant that I confirmed with each of these patriarchs. That it's unconditional. That though they break covenant, God would not break covenant. In the present, even though they might break covenant, God would preserve those, his remnant. In this point, we don't actually see Israel being a blessing to the nations or... uh, or them being blessed by the nations. They were actually being devastated by the nation. But we see God continuing to fulfill His promise to preserve them through it. And, uh, and at this point too, we had a Davidic covenant made too. That the nation of Israel had something to look forward to. A true king. One who would come in the line of David that would restore the nation. 
to its proper place and that it would be a perpetual kingdom that would reign forever. They don't see that in this verse. And, uh, and so the promise is a future promise as well for them. What we find in verses 3 and 4 are promises that God makes with them for restoration, for water for a thirsty land, for their dry ground, spirit, the Spirit of God for their seed, for their offspring, security in this blessing by the Spirit, and he would find that their descendants would be many, that that would come from them. You see, I, I thought about this for a second as I'm thinking about uh, where we live now in El Paso. We come from San Antonio, and uh, there's lots of trees. We have a river that runs through our city, and... Uh, and now I'm, I'm an El Pasoan. Pasoan? Pasoan? Anyway. I'm from El Paso now. This is where we are for a year. And, uh, but I can't help but think back to that uh, muddy oasis that runs through San Antonio. And I think, in El Paso, we, we constantly ask this question, my wife and I, where is the closest water source? You know, we're on the far east side, as, almost as far as you can go out there, and, um, and it's just desert. We got lost so many times driving to our house because it's like, Houses look the same, and the terrain is the same. No landmarks. We're just lost. And so we think, without water, man, what are we going to do? If there was a river that ran through, at least we could follow that. But what God is saying here to them is uh, that he would provide for them a land. And not only that, a land that would have abundant rain. Um, you see, without their crops, without, oh, without water, their crops wouldn't grow. Without water, their people and their cattle, everything would go thirsty. But God promised that streams would come because of an abundance of His uh, rain that He would provide for them. You see, the land would be bountiful. It would grow because, uh, because God was providing rain that they might not ever go thirsty again. You see, we, there's a misconception here. When we think promised land, we shouldn't just think when we say a land flowing with milk and honey, what God has taken the Israelites to, is not an end in and of itself. It never was meant to be that. What the land flowing with milk and honey was to point the Israelites to, what it was supposed to point them to was that God who stood behind, who provided the rain. You see, land doesn't produce crops. Land doesn't produce anything unless God brings rain. What God is saying is, I will pour out my spirit. The land will be abundant. The land will be plentiful because I will pour out my spirit upon you. And I will give you water. The Spirit of God did not come upon many in the exile. He was on those that He was preserving. But uh, we do see as the Spirit being poured out in, in, uh, in small form on those that were faithful, on Daniel in Babylon and others that uh, remained faithful in the midst of it. And God used them, the Spirit of wisdom, to bring fullness to their lives and to preserve the Israelites. But God promised a future where the Spirit would be poured out like water, that the Spirit would be given to people like uh, on their descendants, and that it will produce great uh, fruitfulness. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says that wherever the Spirit goes, and God's Word speaks through the Spirit, and the Spirit powerfully moves, you get fruitfulness from emptiness and, and, and the void, and you get uh, 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 fullness out of the emptiness. He says if we look at this and we hear Spirit, we should be uh, tying it back to these links in the Old Testament, this narrative. And we go all the way back to the beginning, we should think about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Uh, pushing back as God speaks. The water creating dry land. And then as the dry land is, is, is created, He makes that land fruitful. He produces crops. He produces uh, life from that. We should think 
about how the Spirit moves and what this, the, uh, Isaiah is prophesying here, what, the God, what God is promising to Israel is that He would bring His Spirit in abundance and that they would be fruitful, that their descendants would be many. You see, where the Spirit moves and dwells, everything changes. And here in the promise that comes for Israel, we see them almost being wiped off the map. But God says, I'm preserving you. God says, I, though you are but few, I will make you many. I will keep my remnant uh, sustained and uh, I will keep covenant. They would be many and they would dwell in the place that God would give them and He would restore them. And you see, uh, their response comes in verse 5 at the very end of this passage. It says, This one will say to that one, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. You see, they would be restored and their identity would be bound up in the new name that God was given them. Not that they were exiles or to remain exiles forever, but they got a promise here that their future would be one where they would actually look at God as the one who gave them their identity, as the one who preserved them, as the one who graciously loved them. You see, the second temple Jews, if they, they were relieved by the Persians to go back to their homeland, they reconstructed the temple. But they never had a full monarchy again. We see glimpses of hope for them in the Maccabeans, but, but they never, it was always squelched by the power, superpower that it was above them. And so, we never see this promise utterly fulfilled in their lives. This passage in Isaiah pushes us forward. You see, they never fully experienced the promises that came in these verses until Jesus came onto the scene. They never fully experienced it, the fullness that, that, uh, that God was promising them. Why did they receive the promises of God? Why did He promise them good things? And why did He speak through the prophet Isaiah? Why does He offer them these great promises? And why can we trust all that He says and accept these promises that He makes? Why can we trust God? You see, we can trust God because we, as Israel were, was in this instance, as they're reading these verses, receiving these promises, we were once in exile. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, out of his, the abundance of His mercy, called us, not by our old name. We're given a new identity. We're given a new name. We're not defined by our old lives. We're not defined by our old, the old dominion of our old master. We're defined by the names God has chosen to give us. We're defined by uh, being forgiven, being restored. We are defined by God's gracious word that he calls us his beloved. And why are we defined by this? Because Christ, in Christ we are preserved. You see, at Pentecost, we see the, the part of the fulfillment of this passage here, this prophecy, that the Spirit of God was poured upon their descendants in abundance. And God promises as we come to Christ, as Christ draws us unto Himself and, re, and restores us, uh, makes us new, He promises that He will pour streams of living water upon us that we might not ever be thirsty again. He makes us new and He brings fullness into our lives. The Spirit that was upon Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the one who would bring true blessing and abundance to the nations and to Israel, came. And in Him, we have fullness. 
You see, I, it's kind of hard. I thought about this for a second. I think some of us need an encouraging word that sometimes we might think that we need to be defined by our past, by the things that we've done, by our old name. And we have a hard time accepting that God says, you know what, you may call yourself an exile, but I call you beloved. You see, the work of Christ is sufficient to restore you, to redeem you, to take you to a place uh, that's beyond your comprehension. You may have a hard time accepting that. You may think, I need to do something to work up to God's good graces for me. Um, But he says, no, there's nothing you can do that can restore yourself. He says, there is a a great sacrifice that Christ has made that restores you, which you share in every Sunday. This great sacrifice that God, uh, that Christ made in, uh, in giving himself for us. You see, Christ, although he was living in the abundance of the Trinity, he left his place there to become one of us. He became cursed for our sins. He became an exile for us to restore us back into fellowship with the Father. He took on the name of the first exile, Adam. So that we might be given a new name in Christo, Christian. We might be given a new name because of his faithfulness. You see, he became like Adam, that first rebel, that first exile, that we might not be rebellious anymore, that we might be drawn unto him. You see that Christ experienced great thirst on the cross. Thirst that went unquenched so that we could find springs of living water. The location where we would find new life springing up alongside the streams of Christ's love was this great sacrifice that He gave of Himself. You see, Christ, He experienced a great gulf between Himself and the Father. God's only begotten Son. The one at His baptism. Already, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. This beloved Son of the Father cries out on the cross, My God, Father, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. And on the contrary, the beloved of God, this one who is the beloved, this beloved Son of God, was forsaken so that you and me could be called in His church, Yeshurun, God's upright ones, that we could be called God's beloved. You see, because of Christ, because of His great sufficient sacrifice for us, His perfect life lived for us, His great work that He's accomplished, we are given a new name by God. We are named by our Father. That is a gracious word that our Father offers us today in this prophecy that we see fulfilled. And uh, we see it fulfilled in our lives here, but we'll see the better as we hope for resurrection. We look, we, we look toward that day and we say, you know what, God, I trust in your promise that even though we remain as exiles, as those who are in a foreign land, we look forward to a day where you will restore everything, renew everything that we might enjoy you for eternity. You see, he offers something better. You may be discouraged in this point now. You may feel like you are in exile. You may feel like you're stuck. But God says, my beloved, I am here for you. I am preserving you, and I am going to take you to a place beyond your imagination in my presence that you might glorify me and live with me perpetually. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that you are gracious to us. Though we were exiles, named by different names, rebels, those who are dead in our sin, incapable of doing anything to merit uh, your grace unto salvation. Lord, you came to us because Christ has, had accomplished the great work that was necessary to redeem us. Lord, apply that work to us by your Spirit that we might live lives that are in abundance, Lord, in your presence, that we might be uh, fruitful here in this land that you've given us. Uh, call us by your uh, great Spirit, Lord, to live lives that are reflective of this one that Jesus lived, our great Savior, our uh, elder brother, this one who is perfect for us. Thank you for this time. I pray that we would all be blessed today as we share uh, the meal, Lord. Uh, that might you give us sanctifying grace, Lord, as we partake of this meal, and uh, might you take us uh, into our lives strengthened by that grace. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.